bringing in user research really early on in the process. And I think we've done a great job on the product side with it. But on the brand and marketing side, I think it'll be even more important as we go forward and as creative becomes such an important piece of marketing. Welcome to the Small Talk podcast brought to you by Small World, the agency that builds scale up brands. I'm Dan. I'm Harvey. This week, we have Napala Pratani join us in the studio. Napala is the co-founder of Habitual, a health tech startup which provides a weight loss program aimed at people with type 2 diabetes. Its combination of evidence-based food replacement with digital support has been hugely effective for its patients. When you have a brand that deals with patients in particular and, and such a sensitive sort of consumer group, it's really important that your brand feels compassionate. In particular, there's one really nice tidbit about how the brand sounds like a mix between Stephen Fry and Dory the Fish from Finding Nemo, which I think everybody should listen in for. Just before we hear about Habitual and the journey of the business, we always like to start with sort of the person behind the brand. So if you could give us a quick introduction about yourself, uh, your background, your story, and uh, yeah, how you've ended up where you are. Yeah, so I'm from the States originally. I was born in California, decided I wanted to be a, a doctor, um, having kind of artists and service industry in my family history. So I studied biochemistry. I did some cancer research in Spain and had a life crisis when I was about 21 and decided maybe medical school and 500k and mm-hmm. student loans weren't for me. <laughs> and my dad said, you know, startups are really hot right now. Uh, why don't you go get a job at a startup? So I went and got a job fortuitously at a company called NerdWallet in San Francisco. It was 30 people at the time. Grew to a few hundred in wow. the two years I was there and fell in love with being part of that journey. So that's what I've been doing really for the past about 10 years. So I worked in fintech for a few years. And then after a couple of years, kind of ventured out on my own as an independent growth and marketing consultant, which is where I had ended up focusing. So I worked with brands of all sizes, stages, sectors. You know, I worked with a company called Plaid that's been massively successful when they were 30 people before they had a marketing team. I worked with companies that have since gone under. So I've seen a lot of the kind of early decisions and how that can impact in the longer term. So yeah, I've been over in the UK for about six years, despite still having a very American accent, Uh and did my MBA at Oxford all along, really having this vision of eventually starting my own business, but waiting for the right time, place, co-founder, idea, et cetera, to Mm -hmm. fall into place. And post-MBA got hired, again, really fortuitously by this diabetes reversal research company in London which is where I met Ian, my now co-founder, and where we really came up with the idea for what we're doing at Habitual. Really, really interesting. And just before we get into Habitual, you mentioned at the, just at the beginning, you kind of fell in love with the, the sort of startup world. So it was, what was it, sort of first sort of job, and then you took it from 30 to however many. What was it in that sort of start? What, yeah, what gave you the startup bug mm. when you were in there? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I was... 21 at the time and it was my first job my first experience in in business at all I asked my manager what ROI meant you know <laughs> like I yeah, had yeah, studied yeah. biochemistry had no idea about about anything I was doing but even then I felt so much autonomy and ability to have an impact on the business and also the customers of the business and also the ability to wear so many different hats mm. you know as a even 30 person company which is bigger than than where we're at habitual now there is still so much leeway to work on different projects that you're interested in and to to grow and flex in different ways. So I came in as a 
an analyst, which was a very kind of generalist term. And I decided, you know, I really like this, this whole marketing side of the business. Mm -hmm. So I got to focus there. So I think at that stage in my career, it was the perfect place to figure out what I wanted to do. And, you know, I think I've always had a bit of an entrepreneurial bug to, to do my own thing. Even when I wanted to go to med school, my vision was I would always, you know, open kind of a private practice at one point and be my own boss, yeah. essentially. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was exactly the same as, as, same as Dan as I. So then you met Ian. And then when was the moment that you recognized, right, actually, and why, why did you have that moment of saying, right, let's, let's go out on our own? Because obviously it's, it's a brave decision. Yeah, so the company that we were working for was basically delivering the intervention in some of the world's leading diabetes reversal research trials. They were showing that 45 to 60% of people could reverse type 2 diabetes, which was like this really groundbreaking moment in the world of diabetes mm. care when the research results came out. So we saw firsthand how powerful these programs could be for patients, but we also saw how slow paced the delivery and rollout of these programs were. So this company was doing, you know, amazing work, but like 10, 20, maybe 100 patient pilots in the NHS. And we looked at the size and scale of the problem and we were just like, you know, we need to move a lot faster. We need to invest in technology to be able to scale this to many more people. And we weren't able to do that there. So I think the idea for Habitual was really, let's take what we know is good from the research, but also combine it with what we know works really well in digital therapeutics and the ability to, to interact with someone day to day on mm -hmm. their phone and combine those two things and bring the results of this research, which are incredible, to so many more people. Let's slightly touch on the sort of size and the scale of the issue, because I think mm -hmm. this was when we first started working together. I was completely unaware of it. You sort of read bits and bobs about it in the news. But um, as soon as we sort of scratch below the surface, you realise just how much of an, uh, an issue it is and how, you know, it is an endemic. Um, so, yeah, can you slightly touch on the sort of sense of the scale and kind of what, what you're trying to achieve, I suppose? You know, we always say, apart from COVID, and, and maybe now that COVID is over, <laughs> quote unquote, type 2 diabetes is the biggest problem facing our healthcare system. So in the UK, there are nearly 5 million people living with type 2 diabetes. That is not including prediabetes or people at an elevated risk of type 2. In the world, we're looking at 500 million, and the cost of the disease and managing the complications is massive. So in the UK, about $6,000 per patient per year to wow. manage somebody with type 2 diabetes on average. So you can imagine over a lifetime, that's a huge amount of money. In the US, it's about double that. So what that means from a, a healthcare system and payer perspective is that globally, we're spending about a trillion dollars a year managing type 2 diabetes. So there's the financial cost, and then there's obviously the human cost, right? Type 2 diabetes leads to thousands of amputations, strokes, heart attacks, these terrible complications that patients have to deal with and that our healthcare systems have to also kind of accommodate, right? So at a personal level, it's a really scary disease to be diagnosed with. You know, patients tell us, I thought it was a death sentence. Mm. And I think what we're trying to do at Habitual is to, you know, re-educate people and really expand the, the results of this research to as many people as possible. Because when we talk about reversal or remission of type 2 diabetes, that means coming off of medications and living, in theory, complication-free for life, which is mm. an amazing potential outcome for somebody who previously thought they would just have to live at, you know, a fear of, yeah. of suffering an amputation at some point. Yeah. Absolutely. And so that's the ambition. We've got the sort of scale of the issue and then and what you want to achieve. So, so sort of tell us about Habitual. So how, how are you going to sort of achieve that? Yeah, achieve that goal. So yeah, give us, a, give us a brief introduction on Habitual. 
it's really two things that a patient experiences when they come to us. They go on to a low-calorie shakes and soups diet, essentially, which helps them lose an average of 15 or more kilos, which is what the research shows you need to lose to reverse type 2 diabetes on average, right? Mm. So there's the diet piece of it, which, you know, that is that is not groundbreaking. That alone, there have been shakes and soups diets, which are kind of generally regarded as crash diets on the market for many years. The really important piece of it and what the research had done differently is that they took people through a structured behavior change program. Mm-hmm. So as they were going through total diet replacement, it's called, they went through a bunch of different modules to help people really address the underlying habits behind you know, why do I eat the way I do? What is the kind of behavioral pattern that I need to break and then build new habits over time? So at Habitual, we think about it really holistically. So it's not just nutritional habits, it's mental habits, Mm -hmm. it's sleep and it's physical habits. So, you know, I think people often think eat less, exercise more is the solution to the problem. And actually it's, it's much bigger than that. It's everything you're doing in your life. So we try to help people think really holistically about their health and the diet is is just simply the tool that we use to help them reach the weight loss. But really, where we see the innovation and potential to help many more people is is in helping people change their behaviors over time. Yeah, I think when when we were sort of working together, I think that was the the element. I don't know about you, Dan, but definitely the element that I found most interesting was the psychological element of explaining your relationship with food whilst breaking your relationship with food. So it's total diet replacement. So you get out of the habit of going to a shop and picking up bits and bobs and then explaining why you have that relationship with food and then establishing a new one. And then that's how you, I suppose, have a sort of actual sustain, sustainable change. This is a bit where I guess we want to talk a little bit more about the idea behind the brand rather than the business and then also how it flexes. Because I know from having spoken um, to all of you previously, there's a you know an ambition for you know diabetes is, if you're talking, you know, the 20-year vision almost, you know, diabetes is the first issue that you're tackling, but there's no reason why this system that you're building, this process that you're building can't flex beyond that. And therefore you need to build a brand that can flex beyond that as well. Um, mm-hmm. And recognizing not just the building a brand that doesn't just recognize the, the issues of one particular type of patient, but just the patient mindset in general. So I just wondering if you could talk a little bit about the idea behind the brand. Obviously we know that you want to make better health simple and achievable for everyone. Um, but what exactly does that mean? And what does that mean for your audience in particular? The first thing I'll say is is we, from day one, one of our angel investors was like, guys, I don't care if you spend my entire £25,000 ticket on branding. It's so important in healthcare. He was the founder of Echo Pharmacy. We didn't spend the whole 25 k but <laughs> we knew from day one that brand was something that we wanted to invest in and and that was crucial for the business, especially because, you know, at present we're a direct-to-consumer business. We're selling a product and maybe one of the hardest markets in the world to sell a healthcare product where most of healthcare is is already paid for. I, I think when we thought about brand, we raised our angel funding. We launched within a couple of weeks with a private beta of 30 patients and we got daily feedback from them on exactly the experience they were going through. Plus, you know, full kind of interviews, understanding of their entire journey with weight, with food, with type 2 diabetes. And I think what we saw was that, you know, I think the, the piece that's missing for people when they go in to see a doctor, when they go in for their blood levels, is is really the empathy and understanding mm-hmm. and having a friend there rather than somebody who's who's very didactic and telling you, you know, you need to do this, you yeah. need to eat less, you need to exercise more. Slot, get you in, yeah. get you out, yeah. Yeah, here's a, a 
booklet you can take on like a food pyramid, right? Yeah. (laughs) Um, And actually, if you think about type 2 diabetes, like it's it's a multifactorial disease, right? So there are different risk factors, but weight is a huge risk factor for type 2. 90% of people with type 2 diabetes uh, are obese or overweight. So weight is a a huge piece of it and how you eat and whether or not you Mm. exercise, how much you move. That's a, a really important piece of it. So for for people who have struggled for in many cases for many many years with weight and eating actually it's not really about the disease it's about the fact that i have tried so many times to make a change in my life and i've not been able to so for a brand to then come and say just don't eat this thing just do this it's really simple it's yeah. about calorie restriction it's about you know there there are many different methods out there it doesn't really matter what method you're pushing but we realize that people really need a brand that feels like a friend and a companion mm. on the journey. So that kind of underlied everything that we did from the beginning. I spoke previously about it, but we take a really holistic approach as well. And again, if you think about, you know, we help people lose weight at the end of the day. That is the tool that that helps them reverse type 2 diabetes. But actually what we're doing isn't about type 2 diabetes at all. And if you look at the content and the journey that people go through with us, we hardly talk about any sort of disease process. We talk about mental health, we talk about physical health, and we talk about nutritional health. And that is something that can be applied to literally anyone, anywhere, right? Whether or not they need to do total diet replacement and lose 15 kilos, maybe they don't need to lose any weight at all. But there are so many different diseases that come out of, you know, an imbalance between those three factors. So if you look at our logo, it's an H with three pillars, and each of those pillars represents mental, nutritional, or physical health. If you look in our app, there's like a little purple circle around it that is sleep, which is another kind of super important factor as well. But yeah, that's that's kind of how we thought about it from the beginning. And to answer your question about how it flexes, at the end of the day, the outcome right now that we're saying that we provide is type 2 diabetes remission because mm-hmm. that is such an exciting thing. And it is quite novel still because the research is is still coming out in terms of long-term remission. But that doesn't mean that we can't easily shift away or add on different disease conditions. You know, it can go in so many different directions because, as I said, at the end of the day, what we do is not about type 2 diabetes. It's about the underlying habits and behaviors that somebody is engaging with every day. Mm. Yeah, totally. And I think that really, when we when we were working together and, and sort of creating some of the assets that really shone through, having that kind of good grounding on the brand and understanding of the brand help them build out the different messages of, and how we wanted to speak to um, to patients and about patients. And that was really helpful, we thought, at the time. I want to jump around a little bit and just go down to, because we, we started talking about sort of a push rather than a pull brand and product in general. And I guess I wanted to sort of talk about what you think the main patient complacency or naivety you're trying to get around is. You know, patients, like you said, often think type 2 diabetes is for life. They feel defeated before they've even begun their journey. They've tried a million things before, and that can be a really difficult issue to overcome. Like you said before, it's it's it, you guys are selling a healthcare product, whereas in the UK, a lot of the, obviously with the NHS, a lot of the, the um, pre- prescriptions or solutions that they're being offered don't need to be sold to patients necessarily and you have a you have to take a different tack so yeah and i think it was something that was really evident from your brand and speaking to your patients when when we sort of work together um is the amount of education but also empathy that you put into the, the kind of tone of voice of the brand to maybe smash through that complacency or that the idea that um diabetes is this kind of like death sentence as you said i think uh one of the main challenges for us is that 
you know, it requires a really high level of motivation for a patient to engage in a program like ours, right? They are saying, I'm going to essentially give up normal foods that I've been eating for the rest of my, or for the entirety of my life for three months. I'm going to come into this journey and then I'm also going to commit to making a long-term change. And Mm -hmm. when I reintroduce foods into my diet, they're going to be healthy. I'm going to start building up an exercise routine, et cetera, et cetera, right? So it's a really high level of motivation that's required from a patient to come to that point with us. And there are some people who just happen to come across us at the right time in their life, but there are you know, infinitely more people who come across us and think, oh, this is cool, but it's not the right time for whatever reason. And I think part of the challenge for us is that often the right time in somebody's life is based on an external trigger that we have no control over, right? So a diagnosis, an increase in medications, a wedding I'm going to in six months Mm -hmm. that I want to look good for, Mm -hmm. a birth of a grandchild who I want to live longer for and play with. You know, there are so many different reasons. But on the other side, there are so many different life circumstances that are a good reason not to do it. Right. And especially for somebody who has maybe attempted and failed many different things in the past. Why is this going to be the one that's different? So, you know, there's always some excuse. I'm going to wait until after the summer. I'll wait until after Christmas, until after I start the new job. Mm-hmm. And this is all of us. Right. This isn't exclusive to people Absolutely. with type 2 diabetes or who want to lose weight. This is this is all of us and all of the changes we try to make. So I think for us as a brand, it's about from the first point of engagement with somebody really speaking to them in a way that resonates, that they don't immediately say, okay, this isn't the company for me. And then also building that relationship in the long term. So through content and continuing to engage with somebody who has come into our funnel at one point or another and is interested, but maybe isn't quite ready. And, you know, as a brand, you can't force that. You can't create that trigger moment in their life. But if we can stay top of mind and provide people with useful content that really helps them in their journey, then, you know, the chances that they pick us when they do decide that moment has come are just that much higher. Yeah. And and, and I think one of the particular bits um, that's interesting that you've spoken about before is the idea of um, being a push rather than a pull brand or product in terms of when users are actually uh, when users have actually purchased a bit and they're actually in in the in within the, the product itself. Um, typically, you would have that, you know, they've tried a million things whereby they're signed up to a program and then it's like, okay, here you go. Here's access to all of these different uh, things to read, all of this different content that's going to basically help you on your journey to, to lose weight, which is which is more of a pull. It's, it's putting the pressure on the patient themselves to, to, to act effectively, which is not what they need. They don't need more choices. They don't need more options. And I think Habitual as a product flips that on its head, right? You offer people daily um, sort of habit change content and, and kind of make things super easy for them kind of, are that helping hand almost it's it's a it's a direct show of the product itself being that helping hand helping Mm -hmm. people through the journey rather than just giving them all the information they need and then saying hey here you go it's up to you yeah for sure and what we see is that you know we guide people daily through a journey but then often three months in they'll go back to a module for example like week two that they found really useful so um, I think it's it's about giving people the tools, kind of drip feeding them, but then helping them become a person that knows what they need to do to maintain mm-hmm. their health. And, you know, we see people from our first private beta have come back to us and said, oh, I put on a bit of weight over the summer. I want to lose a bit. I want to get my blood sugar levels back down. I think I'll buy some some of your products, for example. So 
it's not about saying you have to be the perfect, healthy person for the rest of your life, but how can we empower you with the tools, um, but not overwhelm you with them, right? Mm -hmm. So kind of help you build up that education over time. And then you feel empowered at the end of it is the idea to be able to manage your health over time. And maybe that means never speaking to us again, which, you know, is an amazing outcome for the patient. And that's fine. But also that could mean coming back to us when you say, oh, you know, gone off the rails a bit. And I think Mm. it's time to to get back to a healthier place. Kind of picks up on what you were sort of saying about, um, and I think it came from a snippet um, of an article I I was reading, and I think it might be you or Ian that was saying, you know, health is about the decisions we take in our day-to-day lives, not what we discuss with the doctor. And you, you kind of touched on that, but then... More broadly about the healthcare industry, and you know, you've, you've talked a bit about you know how the healthcare systems can sort of be perceived as outdated, and how Western medicine sort of thinks about disease and treatment, and how unfortunately, particularly in this country, the NHS is under such strain that it's difficult for a doctor to say, right, I'm going to help you change your eating and exercise habits. Unfortunately, it's a lot easier to prescribe a pill, you know, or surgery more drastically. And I think there are a lot of comparisons with the mental health industry, right? You know, this is sort of, they come in, right, you're feeling like that, right, here's sort of an antidepressant. And then what we're seeing, sort of particularly in the mental health space, is this increase in kind of social prescriptions, such as, right, let's encourage people to join a run club or or sort of start start painting. I think there was a sort of double page spread in the Observer magazine over the weekend that was sort of talking about this um, practice in, I think it was in Brighton that was talking about social social prescriptions and, and how sort of positive they've been. How have you sort of tried to perceive the sort of health industry and how, the healthcare industry and how and to what extent are you trying to sort of challenge it? Obviously, our healthcare systems are are doing what they can within, you know, constrained budgets, headcount, et cetera. And, you know, there's no there's it's not about, you know, us versus them. It's rather that patients just simply can't get what they need in many cases. Right. And we see this time and again that patients will come to us. They say, you know, I got, again, 15 minutes with my doctor, got given a leaflet, and then I got sent out and maybe I will see them in six months or a mm. year's time. And especially with COVID, you know, we, I spoke to someone the other day who said the last five years, the, my doctor's just been a, a ghost. You know, I haven't gotten anything from them. And that's not the fault of the doctor. Of course, it's just that mm. they have so much to Absolutely. deal with. And if you think about the chronic complications of type 2 diabetes, like amputations, like heart attacks, those things, you know, require an intensive amount of care, right? Yeah. So the the focus and the care, I think, for those sort of things can be really amazing. But it's really everything leading up to that where we're missing. So I think for us, it's it's not about saying, you know, the healthcare industry is doing it incorrectly, but mm-hmm. rather how can we augment that and yeah. how can we provide something that really helps a patient, not just from a not as a patient, right? Not from a disease perspective, but as a person and from a behavioral perspective as well. And I think what that looks like over time will change, right? We're a direct-to-consumer company now, so we're helping the people who are motivated and can afford to do a program like this that's not funded by the NHS. But Mm -hmm. over time, the idea is that we'll work with the payers for these, for for healthcare, right? Because if you you look at who pays for the majority of healthcare, it's not actually the consumers themselves, Mm -hmm. even in countries like the US where it is quite expensive to access healthcare still the majority of the costs are are shouldered by health insurance companies self-insured employers etc so i think over time what we think about is how do we partner with healthcare systems and yeah. healthcare payers to make sure that these sort of programs are available to the right person in the right time in their life 
as and when they decide they want to make a change. I'm really interested to hear more about how you would partner with sort of healthcare providers um, and sort of yeah, private insurers because that's yeah, it sounds really really interesting. I guess it depends on the market that you're looking at, right? Mm. So in the UK, the NHS is obviously the main payer at present. They're doing 5,000 patient trials of this sort of program, and the idea is that hopefully they'll be ready to to roll it out at a larger scale, assuming the results are positive. So the NHS is a complicated beast, I will yeah. say. Yeah. <laughs> and we could probably go now and get a few small pilots, which would be cool for, I think, signaling mm. more than kind of a huge revenue driver. But yeah. the idea is that hopefully we'll be positioned when they're ready to roll these out on a larger scale. If you look somewhere like the U.S., for example, again, it's health insurance companies and self-insured employers, right? So it is in their best interest to reduce the cost of managing their employees or members if they're an insurance company. The cost of doing a program like this pays itself back, you know, within, I don't know the exact time frame, right? But you can imagine, say it costs a thousand pounds to deliver something like this. We're actually significantly cheaper than that right mm. now. 6,000 per patient per year, there's just no comparison, right? Yeah. So it's actually quite an easy financial sell to yeah. a health insurance company. Um, but then there are obviously all these other factors that they want to consider, you know, how trustworthy is the company? Can mm. they deliver this at scale? Do they have scientific research to back them up, et cetera, et cetera? And just, well, I just, I just want to jump in and kind of ask you how you sort of found the last year. Feel free to ignore the, the pandemic-shaped elephant in the room. <laughs> I don't know. The past year, I feel like COVID hasn't really had much of an impact on us at all, to be honest. The last year, we raised our seed round last summer. So it's basically been a massive sprint of hiring. So we grew from about seven to 14. We did a public beta last year. Then we restocked kind of towards the second half of the year. So we turned off all all new user acquisition. And then when we relaunched in Jan, we did a full public launch in January of this year, and we felt the pain that everyone else felt kind of second half of last year of performance marketing and Mm. iOS 14. Um, So that was fun. (laughs) Last year in our our public beta, which, you know, we were kind of live to the public and we were doing a bunch of testing on marketing. We'd seen really affordable costs, especially on Facebook, and those like 10 to 40 X overnight. It was insane. Since then, it's been about how do we kind of get these under control and and how do we pull other levers that we have to make sure that we're not completely overspending on marketing. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that because we've seen that with with a few clients and and non-clients as well, I think everybody in in general. And I think, I guess, we're massive advocates for the fact that one of those levers you can pull, and I I suppose, well, it's kind of a part of a bunch of other levers, but brand is, is one of those levers that you can pull. Brand and creative become arguably 10 times more important mm-hmm. than they were previously when cost per acquisition on performance marketing channels rises. And we've seen, for instance, loads of clients run out-of-home campaigns or something that's more of, you know brand awareness driving mm-hmm. as a test and then seeing how that's impacted their performance marketing lag and it's actually driven cost per acquisition down without necessarily changing the creative too much because it, it, it's just a signifier to somebody in the market who... But it's like a trust signal, right? You see, you see somebody on a on a billboard, and then you see that ad on uh, on Facebook, and you're you know x times more likely to click. Brand media in general is seen as kind of uh, you know unmeasurable, and we're starting to see sort of a change in that. But I was just wondering if you, yeah, how important brand was to you, and are you starting to consider some of those levers, or what are some of the other levers that you're pulling? Mm. Well, I was just going to say, actually, it's not even 
it's not even about the line, right? Even within Facebook, now everyone's saying creative is performance, right? Because you can't mm-hmm. target like you, you could anymore. We are targeting now super, super yeah. broad, like gender and age, essentially. Yeah. Um, but if you can have the right message appear in front of the right person, then, you know, that's solved for you. And then the if it's the wrong message, then they just ignore you and that's fine. So we have spent a lot more time thinking about our creative, again, continuing to test our messaging, figuring out what works for people, bringing the patients into it as well. Mm-hmm. I think, um, you know, we are very conscious that we are not our users. Yeah. So bringing patients in, in terms of putting them front and center in the creative, but also bringing them into the creative process mm-hmm. with us. In terms of the other things that we've been working on, one is is thinking about new digital channels. So, you know, obviously everyone now is on TikTok, so we're thinking about how does how does that play a role or not for us and and other channels beyond that. We've done some really lightweight offline stuff. I literally sent my co-founder out to Oxford Circus with some leaflets and said, hey, go see if you can find anyone with type 2 diabetes. He did. It's great. <laughs> I've done it before, actually. And you realize how prevalent it is, right? Because it's not something that you walk around and say, oh, there must be so many people with type 2 diabetes around. But if you know, you go to the middle of Oxford Circus in the middle of the week, you find tons of people. Our 5 Million Faces campaign, again, was for Diabetes Week. It was really about putting a face behind type 2 diabetes or 5 million faces, rather. Mm-hmm. Again, 5 million is, is the number of people in, in the UK with type 2 diabetes. What we've heard from patients time and again is that type 2 diabetes and weight are so stigmatized that they oftentimes don't want to talk about it, right? They get diagnosed with a disease and then don't tell anyone about it for weeks, months, years. And it's kind of this solo journey that they have to go on. And the people that do feel the most supported in their journey don't feel supported by their doctors, but rather their friends, their family, the nurses who care for them. So really the idea of our campaign was to share as many faces as possible of people with type 2 diabetes and who have dealt with the disease in the past and show that they're just normal people like you and I. And it's been amazing. You know, I, to be honest, was really surprised how many people were keen and excited to participate and to be a part of it. But so many people have not necessarily experienced, but felt that there is some stigma around the disease and and not wanted to talk about it. And we're seeing now, you know, we sent out a note to some of our patients and said, hey, we're doing some radio interviews, for example. Do you want to participate? And we got this overwhelming response of people saying, yeah, I just I think it's such an important thing to to increase awareness and education for the rest of the population about it. And I think that, I mean, that's also a testament to the brand, the product, you know, when we filmed with Colette and Andrew and Colette, if you're listening, it was great to see you on TV recently <laughs> as well. Yeah, it was, it was, it was amazing to see how they, how open they were about speaking about their issue. But in particular, the reason they were so open about it was because of the success they'd sort of seen with Habitual. And it, I think Colette almost said, you know, like people need to hear about this and mm. um, people need to know about how, you know, revolutionary um, Habitual has been for me, how much of a lifesaver it's been for me. So, um, I think well, it doesn't even have that. to be us, right? Even yeah. I think her point was, I didn't know what type 2 diabetes could go into remission and now I do. And that is a message that needs to be spread to so many more people. And yeah. Habitual is the answer for some people, but for others, they might say, I'm going to take this journey on my own and that's perfectly okay. Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't care. There's no way we're going to help all 5 million people as, as a single company. And that's totally okay with me as long as we can help more people kind of come to the moment of saying, right, I'm empowered and ready and I, I know what I need to do to make a change, then, you know, that's amazing. That's the end goal. 
I just quickly want to jump in about what you said about being a bit more, well, utilising, I suppose, your customers, right? Mm -hmm. And you said you've had a sort of slight, well, maybe a renewed realisation that you really want to kind of learn from them, both from a messaging point of view and how they're sort of feeling. Has that been a sort of slight shift? Because I think a lot of startups kind of can be accused of sort of neglecting their customer and sort of saying, this is our vision and this is what we want to stick to. Uh, but then equally on the other side, you don't want to just completely listen to customer because you're the one with the vision. And I think, I think it's the Revolut CMO said, you know, he was really eager to sort of build in public and say, right, what features do you want? Mm. We want this to be your bank. We want this to be a human bank. And he said that's sort of the part of the main reason for their success is people felt that they had ownership of, over what they were building. And I suppose parallels can be drawn with you guys because you're sort of saying, particularly the 5 million faces, you're sort of, you were saying you were encouraged and to a certain extent surprised by how forthcoming people were with trying to help. So would you say there's been sort of an encouraging shift? And and if there is, how are you going to try and sort of utilise that kind of moving forward? Do you know, to be honest, it has been from day one, maybe more on the product side. Mm -hmm. So as I mentioned, our private beta, we heard from 30 people every single day for six months about exactly what they were going through. And that is really how we developed our behaviour change content. That's how we developed what became the habitual app, the features in there. And we did, you know, periodic, like in-depth user interviews with them. I think on the brand side, it's a bit of a balance, right? Because we actually, we sat down with them when we did our initial brand identity and they were like, "Mm, I'm not sure about the name. Why don't you call it, you know, lose weight fast and weight is spelled with an eight or something, right? So you you have to balance it, right? Because you have to be a bit Steve Jobs and say, I know what somebody needs and they're not going to tell me. But you also need to listen to them. Mm-hmm. I think bringing in user research really early on in the process, we do, again, I think we've done a great job on the product side with it. But on the brand and marketing side, I think it'll be even more important as we go forward and as creative becomes such an important piece of marketing, regardless of where that creative is appearing in the world. Part of creative is obviously the way that you speak as a brand. Um, mm-hmm. And I think one of my favorite bits of, you know, after pouring over, one of the bits that really shines through is your tone of voice. I think in the category that you're in, there's tons of regulations. Um, it's sometimes hard to find brands of empathy, more so because they're scared of being slapped on the wrist rather than probably wanting to talk in such a bland way i think there's a few brands in the market that maybe stand out like you've got vitality for instance who've built a particularly brilliant brand obviously in, in sort of kind of healthcare insurance um a little bit adjacent to you but i just wondered whether that kind of tone of voice was a conscious decision if you could give us any insight into how you've built a brand that kind of looks and speaks like a friend from the sort of packaging to the mm. ui of the app to the content that you put out one of the things in particular that i really love is in your kind of brand personality or tone of voice personality you say you're kind of a cross between dory and stephen fry or you kind of adopt <laughs> the, the tone of voice of those uh those two yeah that was an exercise we did actually in the very very beginning our now head of design um did some freelance work for us on brand and he took us through that and that was one of our favorite realizations if you will as well so tone of voice as you say is super important it's also really hard in healthcare because you can't just be a friend you also need to be scientific and credible and trustworthy so it is a constant not push and pull but a balance right Mm. between being empathetic and friendly and and really understanding your user but also providing them 
with content and information that they feel is credible and can trust, which is, you know, even more important if you're a, a new brand, a startup that nobody's heard of before and they just come across you on Facebook, for example. So I think the from day one, it's been about how do we balance those two things? How do we be, you know, a bit Stephen Fry, a credible, authoritative, but not condescending, but also a bit Dory, friendly, excitable, enthusiastic mm. and optimistic, but not over the top. Maybe she is a bit over the top. <laughs> but <laughs> You know, we have a brilliant copywriter who I think has done an amazing job of, of taking a lot of the scientific research and turning it into digestible content. I think one of the kind of small examples of what we do is that we literally reference everything we do. So every single article, every page on our website that has a reference to a scientific study, every basically everything we write that has some sort of stat or or claim is backed up by scientific research. And that obviously takes time and a lot of effort to make sure that you're saying things that are credible. But what it means at the end of the day is we hear again, time and again, when we talk to patients or potential users, when we do interviews, they say, oh, I, I like that it looked scientific. You know, it's not that people are going and reading these references, but they care that we've done we've done the research and that we are giving them something that's actually credible. So having little things like that that give you credibility and authority, but then speaking in a way that is not how a doctor would would speak yeah. to someone, but maybe how their friend or you know nurses patients say are are tend to be the best in in the healthcare system for really understanding and mm -hmm. being empathetic. I was wondering as well if there's any brands in particular that you guys look to for inspiration from within your category or outside of the category, Sue? Mm. Yeah, so many. We have a brand inspo section of our, one that we've been maybe not taking inspiration from, but kind of respecting recently is Newman, which mm -hmm. does, you know, ED, hair loss, et cetera. I think what they do is is super bright in your face. Like you have to stop and look yeah. at it. Um, And I think, what they've done nicely is Hims was obviously kind of the first mover in the space. And I think that they did the same thing, but in kind of a more pared back version. Yeah. So I think what Newman has done is cool because it's really taken it to the next level. Um, and, you know, as much as I would love for us to to be like that, I think for our product and our user, it doesn't make sense. But it is cool to see how other brands have have taken something so stigmatized and made it fun and, and cool. Mm. Um, another one that we spent ages kind of pouring over and borrowing things from is called Tempest. It's an alcohol addiction recovery company in the States. Um, it's actually where one of our marketing advisors came from. Essentially, I stole everything that they did for like a year. And then finally, I was like, let me just reach out to the, <laughs> the woman that leads marketing for them and see if she'll help us. So Tempest has you know, so many parallels to what we do in that it's it's essentially a behavior change program, highly stigmatized condition, something that is really hard to come to a moment that you say, right, I'm going to make a change about this. And I think Tempest has done such an amazing job of really nailing tone of voice and again, being that friend, being non-judgmental, but also trustworthy and and having evidence to back up what they do. Um, so Tempest, we looked at all the time from, from the beginning, really. Cool. I guess we want to kind of move now nicely into the sort of reflections and sort of future of the brand, um, in particular. And I guess the first question we always like to ask is sort of what the ambition is now for the next five years to 20 years, I suppose. It's really a chance to lay out that roadmap for habitual and, and make a, make a few predictions. 
at its core, what we do is about helping people change behaviors. And that doesn't have to only be applied to type 2 diabetes. So in five years, I would say we will have definitely expanded internationally and then also probably started thinking about some other disease categories. I think interestingly, if even now, if you look at our users, about 50% of them don't actually have a type 2 diagnosis. So they're, they have a prediabetes diagnosis or they want to lose some weight and they've seen something about type 2 diabetes. They understand the link between weight and type 2 and they're being proactive about taking an action, right? So even with 100% of our messaging around type 2 diabetes, we still see that. So I think there's so much opportunity for us to go into more condition-specific messaging and there's a whole range of of conditions, sorry, that that weight loss can help, right? So type 2 diabetes is obviously where we started. There's hypertension, heart disease, sleep apnea. If we look at 20 years, maybe, it's about being a platform to help somebody make a positive change to their health, regardless of what goal that is. And that's not going to be total diet replacement, I can tell you, for mm. most people. But if we can build the technology to be able to guide somebody through a behavior change journey, regardless of what sort of outcome that they want to reach as a result of that, that's really where the opportunity is, right? And and I think that we have this kind of idea that one day we can be this platform they come to. They say, this is my goal. This is how long I have to achieve it. This is how much I can spend on it. And then we can service the right digital intervention, but also the right physical mm. therapeutic, if you will. So you know, now people, everyone's talking about continuous glucose monitoring, which is a cool new technology which can help weight loss, but also athletic performance and all of these other things. Finally, we like to sort of end with some recommendations and then who we should have on next as well. Um, so in terms of recommendations, we like to get a podcast, a book and a person to follow. So I, I just listen to news podcasts. I'm super boring. But I, <laughs> have to be, but don't have to be brown related I think at all. Um, for me, you know, it's just super relaxing to listen to the the smooth sounds of BBC radio every morning. <laughs> I, th I think we've stopped doing it, but we used to buy for everybody that joined the company, the book, Why We Sleep, mm -hmm. um, which was kind of this whole hype a couple of years ago, but it still, I think, is is super important. And for a lot of us, the kind of pillar of health that we don't think a lot about. He also does an amazing job of breaking down some of the science um, and making it super interesting to read about. So the, he also has a, a podcast and, you know, a number of other kind of media channels, but there's a, I believe he's a doctor called Peter Atia, which he does some really interesting podcasts. And um, even on his Instagram, he does kind of breakdowns of scientific research. But And then, yeah, lastly, somebody who we should have on next, preferably a brilliant brand owner like yourself. Do you know what? I saw this question and I was like, I'm going to think of somebody from my network. And then I got totally distracted. <laughs> so I don't actually have someone for you, but I'll think about it. I'll, co I'll come back okay, to you. Please do, please do. <laughs> I mean, you like, for instance, you already mentioned Tempest, which seems, seems like a... Yeah, perhaps. Give, give it some thought. Give it some Take thought. some time. <laughs> I've been Dan. I've been Harvey. If you like the podcast, please share it on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, or even just to a mate. If you or anyone you know runs a brand that you think would be perfect for small talk, then get them to hit us up on hello at smallworld.marketing. We're Small World, and this was Small Talk. Small Talk.